The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I've been talking to a number of different people over the last several months about Tim Keller's recent book, Making Sense of God, subtitled, An Invitation to the Skeptical. But even if you're not skeptical about God in general or Christian faith specifically, this is an excellent book. It has a lot of great stuff in it, and it has one chapter in particular that says a lot about death that's influenced a lot of my thinking, and you heard some of that influence here and there throughout the sermon last week. But again, after last week's church service, I was talking with someone about this book and then about that chapter about death and, and moving on to the more that he has to say, he has to say a lot of things I didn't touch on in the sermon. And I thought, as I was having that conversation yet again, I should just say this to everybody all at once so that you can all hear about that book. And so, both so that I'm careful to give credit where credit's due, and so that maybe I would entice you to buy yourself a Christmas present that'll do you some good. It's an excellent book. We usually have a copy out here on the, on the bookshelf in just truth and advertising. I don't get a penny from selling any of these. We sell them at cost out there. But I, I highly recommend, pick up this book, Tim Keller, Making Sense of God. It'll really be helpful to you. Read it and pass it on to somebody else. Let me pray before we turn to the text before us this morning. Lord, we just sang a song about you fixing and redeeming our ruined lives. That line catches me, and maybe it catches some of us, perhaps because we either are quite aware that we have ruined our lives, or because we never thought of our lives as ruined. But it's true. We are ruined people. We are ruined by sin, and sometimes we become acutely aware of that, and sometimes we live oblivious to it. But ruined we are by sin and by our bondage to it, and you have redeemed. You've provided redemption. Bless your holy name. We're going to think about that a little bit from this passage before us this morning, and Think about the resurrection a little bit more and discover in it hope. And there are probably various people here this morning and various themes in this passage that you need to hook up. And so will you make those connections, Father? By your Spirit, will you connect each one of us to particular things in this passage, particular ideas maybe that that are meant by your wisdom and, and kindness, are meant to build us up, maybe to convict of sin, maybe to encourage in the midst of hopelessness. Whatever it is, Lord, would you make the connections? Would you commission your spirit to move through the room, make your word clear, build your people, and honor your name? So we pray for his ministry here, and we pray also that you would make our, our thinking clear and my speaking clear so that the word would be clear 
You're kind, and we say thank you. So meet us again today, and bless us still more. We, we come to you asking always. We come to you asking. You are honored to give. It's one of the ways you show yourself to be good, to be grand, that you have an endless bounty from which you can give and an inclination to do so. Blessed be your name. So give to us this morning. Give us your spirit so as to give us the word, so as to give us Christ, so as to give us life. Do that this morning, Father, we pray. Thank you. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 24. Jesus has been tried, unjustly condemned to death and crucified for all to see. He was killed, and everybody saw it. His body was taken down and, and prepared for burial by a follower of his, a known public leader. We have his name. This is, this is historical fact. He was buried in a particular tomb that everybody saw and knew where it was. Fact. The tomb was sealed up. Jesus, dead and buried, and then he came back to life. That's what the evidence shows us, what the text tells us. But this is, if we're honest, this is so perplexingly, amazingly difficult to believe. What do we make of that? Especially since, as Luke presents the events to us, all, all the gospel writers present the events in different order, and as Luke presents the events to us, we have not yet seen the risen Jesus. We've just heard some testimony and seen an empty tomb. We haven't seen him yet. He said he would be condemned to die. He said he would rise again long before it ever seemed that the crowds would turn against him. He said that would happen. And now something has happened. What do we make of it? Can you believe this? That Jesus has risen back to life again from the dead. That Jesus has come back to life, that he has broken the power and the curse of death and can therefore bring people to life. Do you, can you believe this? We come to our passage today still in the middle of asking that question, and we're going to meet two men for whom at first their answer is, no, I can't, I don't. It's too amazing to be believed. But then eventually everything changes for them. And we want to we look at that and, and, and track that process because it's important for us. It, it's possible for us, too, that we can walk the process they walked and can answer the question in the way they come to answer it. Yes, the question about the resurrection, which is really the whole question about Jesus. Is he the Christ? Is he the one the only one in whom there is forgiveness, in whom there is victory over death and deliverance into shalom, into the life of rest and wholeness, peace and joy that we all desperately want. We're going to follow their process of coming to see that. It's a help to us. So let me read the passage and then draw from it three different observations. This is Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, 
two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them, him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to what? To which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and I was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Luke chapter 24. Three observations. Here's the first. We are often slow in heart to believe and therefore heavy in heart without hope. We are often slow in heart to believe and therefore heavy in heart without hope. We start here with this problem, this heavy in heart without hope because that's where our two travelers start. That's where they are. And we want to see this See this condition that they're in, and especially where it comes from. That's the connection we're working on here in the first point. Verse 13 begins on the same day of the resurrection, 
with two of them, that is two disciples, taking a short walk from Jerusalem out to this town, Emmaus, probably their home. They've been in the city evidently for the, the Passover feast, and they're headed back. And as they walk, verse 14, they're talking about what has happened. It says a couple times there in the first few verses that they are talking and discussing together, verse 15. They're having a back and forth here. The vocabulary is emphasizing a deep conversation, almost like a debate. Back and forth. Talking about all these things that had happened. But this is not a spirited, lively, hope-filled debate. It's important to see this. Back and forth, but not hopeful. Jesus catches up to them, and he walks with them for a bit. He's right there. Verse 16 but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Kept from. There's some sort of a supernatural blindness placed on them for a moment to teach a lesson. They couldn't see what was walking right next to them. Some loaded meaning there. Carries on to the rest of the passage. So he's right there. They don't see him. And end of verse 17 you can see them downcast and depressed. They stand there looking sad. You can see forlorn across their faces. The stranger asks them, what are these words you're talking about? He'd heard their conversation, and he acts like he doesn't get it. Are you the only pilgrim to Jerusalem that doesn't know about these things? What things? the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then they proceed to describe Jesus in appropriate Jewish terminology. He's a prophet, mighty in word and in deed before God and the people. This is high praise of Jesus. It's language fitting for the heroes of the Old Testament, major figures, even like the expected prophet that Moses said to look for, that Moses said was coming. So they're praising him, but they have a bit more to say about him too, which is why they're depressed but we had hoped for more than just a prophet. We were hoping that he was about to redeem Israel. That's big. They had let their hopes rise, and they, they had come to, to hope, to believe that this, right now, this, this, this time was the time of Israel's liberation. It was, it was here. There's a bunch that don't... Surely there's a bunch they don't get, but they get this much. They need to be delivered. They wouldn't be sad otherwise. There are a whole bunch of people in Judea right now that are discussing and talking about the events of the weekend with indifference or even with delight because they, most people, didn't see a gigantic problem to which the solution has arrived and then it's crushed. They didn't see the problem, they didn't see this as a solution, so they're, they're indifferent or maybe even happy. But these guys, for all they don't realize, they realize that Israel needed to be redeemed. There was a great problem faced by the people that their ethnicity and their heritage and their knowledge and the possession of the scriptures and the physical presence of the temple and all the sacrifices and so on. They had all of that, but they had a problem that all of that did not answer, did not address, didn't fix. The people needed to be redeemed. 
like all people, in fact. Whatever their ethnicity or heritage or knowledge, at the core, now these guys would have expressed it in some particular Jewish ways, but at the core, redemption, the need for redemption, is a universal human problem. A need to be set free from, redeemed from bondage to sin, which twists and destroys us within, and then us twisted and destroyed, every grouping, every family, every cluster, every society, every nation, the world that we all form when we get together, it itself is twisted and broken. And that that bondage within, it doesn't just ruin society here, it sets us against God as we, as we say to him, you know, no thank you, I will go my, we will go our own way. It sets us against him and, and dooms us to judgment under his hand. It locks us up to death, in fact, the end of all that we actually are seeking, the end to life. It separates us from love and from joy and from rest and from communion with the God for whom we were made and from communion with people in the way we were were made for and longed for. We need to be delivered from that bondage that, that locks us up, that ruins us, and that brings onto us the judgment of God who is pure and right and holy and will not allow sin. We need to be set free from that. Every person on earth needs to be set free from that, redeemed from it, brought out from under it. How can that be done? Well, not by one of us. We need somebody who's different than us, somebody who's, who's superior in another way, other. One God had promised to send, who in the scriptures he repeatedly told us would come and would reign over us for good, would set us free from that which locks us up, who would be like, in everything he is and everything he does, would be like the good and holy God of love that sent him. He would defeat sin and death. They knew this and they had watched for it and they had longed for it and they had hoped for it and they'd seen Jesus act with indiscriminate compassion on people. He'd seen Jesus act to set people free from bondage to disease, They'd seen Jesus act to set them free from demonic oppression. They'd seen Jesus act to forgive sin and make people whole. They'd seen him command the wind and the waves, and they had begun to hope that this was the one, and then he died. Oh! And besides, it's been three days. He's dead. There's no hope. He's dead. We were wrong. And we still stand unredeemed, bound. I don't know what's coming that could be better than that. And that failed. And then there's this oddity. Note, it's not a note of hope. They stand there sad, dominated by sorrow. There's this oddity, verses 22 to 24, the facts we considered last week. 
Some of our women amazed us. They, they said they went to the tomb and the body wasn't there. And they said there were angels there who said he was alive again. And then some others of us went to the tomb and found it like they said, but didn't find the body either. They do not say with any grain of hope. They're standing there saddened. Maybe he's risen. There's no body. A group of angels say he's alive. They don't say that. They just say, that's odd. Hmm. There's no hint of belief, just confusion. There are the facts. They know them, laid out in front of them. And our question from last week, can you believe this? And at the moment, the answer for these two is, no. We can't. We don't. They can tell you everything. They, they just did. They can put the facts in front of you. They understand the problem. But they are not embracing it in genuine faith. They are not taking it in, trusting it, and putting themselves in submission to it and walking forward in it, believing it. They are, as Jesus says in 25, slow in heart to believe. They are debating and discussing and doubting and ending in unbelief and therefore in sorrow and hopelessness. That's the connection we want to see here. That's where they sit. Hope raised up, dashed to pieces by his death. And they sit then experientially sorrowed. We look at this first because this helps us understand something about ourselves often. Now, of course, the whole point is that we've been let in on the secret. And don't you want to say, guys, he's right there. There's no reason to be sad. Out of the mouths of babes, huh? He's right there. There's no reason to be sad. But they don't believe that, and so they are sad. We're going to come to that, but we, we, we hold here, we grab hold of what's here, because this is ground that is familiar to us. It is a common problem for all of humanity. We are often slow in heart to believe and therefore heavy in heart without hope. See, once you become aware of a problem, a problem like this problem, the need to be redeemed, once you become aware of what's actually afflicting us, a fallen nature and a, a sin bondage that we cannot break, once you become aware of a problem of a holy God who sees all and will judge, and then become aware that we can't fix it, that we aren't strong enough, that we aren't good enough to overcome our bondage to sin, we aren't good enough to put our world back together, right then, sober-minded hopelessness moves in, and rightly so if that's all you see. 
So you walk that through. Bondage to sin, destroyed world, judgment for God, no solution. Let's be happy makes no sense. And as soon as you realize that makes no sense, hopelessness sets in. Bondage to sin, ruined world, ruined life, judgment from God, I can't fix it. Hopelessness. This is, this is so good. This is so good because the world sits right there and so often, this is the point of this passage, is so often disciples sit right there. Disciples. But it's no way to live and it's totally unnecessary. Don't deny the problem. Don't, don't try to cast away, no, there is no sin bondage. There is no wreckage in life. We actually are getting better and we can fix everything and there is no God of wrath. We're strong enough. We're wise enough. We're, we can become good. Don't throw away the problem. Find the answer. See. Jesus has not failed. He lives. This is so sweet because you can, you can face the truth and live hopeful in the middle of the truth. You don't have to deny reality. You can face the truth and say, yes, yes, and glory. Here's the second observation. Christ has been raised to glory. And so his people will be too. We've got to see the first, that we understand the, the connection between sorrow and hopelessness and unbelief, missing the truth. And then we've got to see the second. We've got to see the second. Christ has been raised to glory, and so will we be then, we as people. The hope these two men had, verse 21, it's dashed. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, in fact, he's not gone. He's right there. So very much in view, they just didn't understand. They didn't understand the problem or, or the answer, how it was to be accomplished. Jesus says, verse 25, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's a question that, of course, is a statement. It was necessary. It had to be. It must be just like last week, must be. Had to go this way. Jesus is affirming for them that this is not a change in plans. This is not a, a thwarted plan or a mistake or an error, not a modification. It was the plan all along, given what the problem was. The redemption we already considered, the redemption from bondage to sin and penalty of death, wrath, in order for God to redeem a people, he had to deal with the problem. And so he spoke of it all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets spoke of all this. Why didn't you believe it? The prophets said it all the time. 
What's going to happen is redemption with a substitute, redemption with a payment, redemption with a sacrifice. It's modeled in countless ways. Perhaps Jesus mentioned Moses in Genesis chapter 3. Right away in the Bible, immediately after sin enters into the world, what happens? Curse and death comes, and then God speaks of a descendant of Adam and Eve who would crush Satan. Bruised in the process. He would defeat death and overcome it, but would himself be afflicted, this promised one. Maybe Genesis 22 came up. Where the promised son of Abraham, young Isaac, was redeemed from death as God provided a substitute sacrifice to die in his place. Then later in Genesis, what do we read of? The descendants of Abraham, again saved from death by one they thought dead. One they tried to destroy, Joseph. Cast away into a far land, cast into a dungeon to die, but then raised up to rule over Egypt and from that now exalted position to save them. And there's Exodus with the Passover lamb, the redeemed firstborn son, as we've seen. The wrath of God falling on the lamb instead of on those who trust God. A great trade reflected again and again in the whole sacrificial system that God told Moses to tell us in the book of Leviticus. Moses. One of the great prophets, Samuel. So important to see in Samuel When God gives us the king we need, he is a king who is anointed and then despised and run out of town, rejected for years and years, cast out before he is finally enthroned. David, who himself wrote so many psalms about the work of God, saving him from betrayal. Psalm 16 reads, and not letting his Holy One see corruption, not letting him decay in the grave. But he would be despised, the Son of Man. As seen in Ezekiel, the model Son of Man, God's chosen servant that the people want nothing to do with and send away and don't listen to. But as Daniel tells it, as we have seen, the Son of Man will come into heaven on the clouds with the people to receive from God Almighty a great, vast kingdom forever. kingdom of glory. It all ends in glory. But after much trouble, after much heartache, like in Hosea, when God's plan includes his chosen servant through much humiliation, paying a great price, buying back to himself his beloved bride out of bondage. It's all over the Old Testament in Moses and the prophets. It's laid down everywhere that God redeems a people by substitute sacrifice, by paying a price, suffering and rejection and betrayal and death, and yes, victory over death. Resurrection is there too. Pieces of it all here and there, but nowhere is it so cleanly expressed as in the great prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, when the man of sorrows is the one through whom God redeems. 
Isaiah writes that surely he, the Christ, has borne our sorrows. He has borne our sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted by God, wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. On him the Lord has laid our iniquity. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for, on behalf of, in the place of transgressors like us. He makes his grave with the wicked, buried among the rich, crushed by the Lord. He makes an offering for our sin, he himself. And yet, he shall see his offspring, his children. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's in Isaiah 53 also. This is the king crushed, killed as an offering for sin, buried, but nonetheless seeing his children and prolonging his days after they seem to have come to an end, prospering after it seems he's been destroyed. This is a profound passage. The single most explicit one, perhaps, in all the Scriptures. And as Isaiah 53 comes to an end, it doesn't just end there. It moves on to glory. There is a period of not yet, not fulfilled yet. We live in that period right now. But if you move to the very end of the of the book of Isaiah, what you find there is this king, this raised king comes into a new heaven and a new earth gloriously with joy and gladness in God's people and his presence forever and ever. Jesus himself, a mighty prophet, told us of this. You remember the parable, Luke 13 perhaps, a kingdom feast where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and all the people are all gathered together in the presence of God, feasting with the king in joy, together in glory, because Christ opened up a door to invite them in to glory. That's the message of the Scriptures from front to back. Can you imagine the walk along that road to Emmaus? as Jesus unpacks that bit by bit by bit. Maybe he mentioned those passages, maybe more. That's what God said was going to be all along. And then it finally happened. He suffered unto death and was raised again. And because he has been raised... God's people are redeemed. The the bondage is broken. Raised from the grave, raised up to glory. The penalty has been paid. We don't owe it. Death is destroyed. We must no longer fear it. This is good news. This is glorious good news.
But if you don't know that and don't believe it, what do you have left? You gotta, you gotta run with that good news because right there is heart fortifying, hope building truth. The grave is not the end, and wrath is not coming on you. Glory. Glory. Unless you don't know it. Then all you're left with is problem with no solution. This is cause for great hope, for perspective-affecting hope. But if you do not believe this, what is left inevitably is hopeless sorrow. And it is important right here to see our culpability in this problem. When we have the problem of hopeless sorrow, of unbelief, it is important to see our culpability, to see our responsibility for this problem. We are responsible for what we think and ruminate on and see in our hearts and minds. We often have a difficult time telling people who are controlled by sorrows, I mean, just think about this, who are controlled by sorrows that it's their own fault they're sad. It's kind of hard to say. And of course... In love, we want to be and should be tender and wise with people and ask questions and listen and think along with them. You don't just want to throw that around. It's your own fault that you're sad. Be careless with that. But sometimes it is. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God, says the psalmist, Psalm 42, 43. That's the psalmist telling himself, self, your downcastedness is your own fault. Due to your own faulty focus, your own faulty belief, that's the case with us sometimes too. And while, of course, we want to be tender and gracious, we want to love people and listen to them carefully, sometimes the kindest and most gracious thing we can do is point this out like Jesus does. Verse 25 is not sympathy. Certainly not a compliment. It's not harsh condemnation either. It's not harsh condemnation either. But it's not sympathy it's not a compliment. It is love, and it leads his disciples into their joy. That's you can identify. That's love because of where it leads them when they follow it. It leads them into their joy. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe the prophets. See this. Believe this. There is a path to hope. There is indeed a great problem. You're right, you need to be redeemed. And there's a redeemer. 
and he lives. He's alive. His death was not an aberration. His death was part of the plan, and so was the resurrection, and it has happened. This glorious plan of God has not failed. He is alive, and he reigns in glory and in power. He is the living one, the living one with whom you must deal, with whom you get to deal, because gloriously in him you find final redemption from the slave master that destroys you and from the wrath of God that dooms you. Put your hope in God, in what God has done in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended to glory, opened up the door of the grave, opened up the door of heaven, and beckons you to come in and feast in glory forever and ever and ever and ever. See it and believe it and hope in it, Christian. And do not let it run away and get lost, but grab a hold of it and bring it back. And when you find yourself downcast in soul, say, soul, why? So downcast, put your hope in the risen Lord. This is good. And it is yours, certain and free. Live in it and believe it and hope in it. He's been raised to glory, and so will you be too. This is cause for life-controlling hope. This is why we are a people who, even while we sorrow, are to be ever rejoicing. It is not the kind of rejoicing and the kind of hope that eliminates sorrow. It controls it. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope unless you don't have this hope. Christian, it's yours. If you're not a Christian, it can be yours. Come to him. See him and believe. Which brings us to the third observation. How do you see him and believe? Third, even better than by physical sight, in the Scriptures, God reveals Christ to us for our hope and joy. Even better than by physical sight. In the Scriptures, God reveals Christ to us for our hope and joy. It's maybe easy to envy these guys because, in fact, we think it's easier because they, you know, they do get to see Jesus, physically see him with their own eyes, sit at table with him. But don't be disappointed that you can't see Jesus with your own eyes. Hope and joy in Christ is still available to you in the Scriptures. Obviously, Jesus was physically revealed to them and to hundreds of other people thereafter, and that is powerful and compelling reason to believe the resurrection. We've got to face the facts here. We talked about some of this last week. People who assumed he was dead and buried forever are shocked by the hundreds to meet him and find him alive and then are moved to lay down their lives for him for what they saw with their own eyes. That's huge. It has serious impact on how we view their testimony to us about the resurrection. 
But that testimony to us is coming to us in the Scriptures, in the Bible. And Jesus is not going to appear bodily to any of us again until he returns in the second coming. All we have is the written testimony about Jesus, but that's plenty good enough. In fact, ironically, that's what is most emphasized here in this passage. The written testimony about Jesus is what is emphasized and what has primary influence on these two men. Jesus hides his physical identity from them for quite some time. Why? For the sake of verses 25 to 27 and verse 32 and verse 35. They despair because he's dead. And God's hope for deliverance has vanished. And Jesus does not say, hey, look, look, good news. I'm right here. He doesn't say that. But we could. He doesn't. It'll come, but more important is that he build in them and provide guidance for us. It's more important that he build in them attachment to the Scriptures. His mild chastising of them is for being slow to believe the Scriptures. You foolish ones, you can trust the prophets, the scriptures, more than you can trust your own eyes. You can trust the scriptures to be faithful interpreters of life, to explain what's going on around you, what's happening and what's going to happen. And then he explained the scriptures. He taught the Bible to them. Verse 32 says, He opened the scriptures to them, illumining what was there, so that they could see the truth in the Bible before they could see it with their own physical eyes. That's what happened. And then verse 32 says, after they kind of come to their senses, they get it all. What do they say there? Did not our hearts burn within us when? Back on the road. When he talked and opened the scriptures. Verse 35, they told the rest of the disciples what happened on the road and how they physically finally saw him in the eating. But the first thing, they explained to others how he explained the scriptures to them. Important point here that is where their hearts came alive. That's where hopelessness and despair turn to burning heart. They didn't get it all, obviously, yet, but but hope and joy sparked in them and began to burn in them as Jesus says, let me explain to you Moses. Not when Jesus said, it's me. Let me explain to you Moses. Let me explain to you Samuel. We might say, we probably tempted to say, Would you skip that and just show up, please, Jesus? And he says, no. He's not going to show up. 
You realize he wants you to walk in hope-filled joy and he is not going to physically, bodily show up here. But he has indeed given you the scriptures and he has indeed given you the same Holy Spirit. And he has indeed promised you that that Holy Spirit will take this book, this Bible, and will illumine it so that you see the truth in it. That's what you need. All the things concerning himself in the scriptures, the same scriptures, here's the blessing. And this is good news because we will not see him, but we will face plenty of situations in life when we can't see him, if you know what I mean. He's not going to physically show up, but there's going to be plenty of times in life when we, when we struggle to see the one walking with us and we feel the pressure and we feel the, the burden and we feel the hopelessness of all the world collapsing on us. And we have present, we have present the same instruments for hope and joy and delight. Your heart can burn within you just like theirs did. So we can have the hope of God that accompanies the comprehension of the plan of God being perfectly executed to kill and raise the Son of God, to pay for the sins of the people of God, to deliver us into the presence and the joy of God, all accomplished by the ministry of the Spirit of God in you. as he causes you to think about and to ruminate on and to believe the word of God. Can you believe this? Take and read. Take and read and meditate on this that you may believe it and live in happy hope. This is where he reveals himself. This is how he renews you and shows you the truth. Do you have a plan for that? A practice of it? All throughout the week, you've got to get yourself in front of the Scriptures somehow or another. And if you struggle throughout the week, always remember that's why God gave Sabbath. If you struggle throughout the week, at least today, or some Sabbath day, you've got a chance to sit and to get yourself in front of this Word of God. And when you come to it, do you know what you're looking for? Do you know who you're looking for? You're not looking for factoids. You're not looking for, I understand all the details of David's life. I understand all the, the Ten Commandments. i got them memorized. You're looking for God and you. And God to you through Christ. 
You're looking for God's plan of redemption and in it to see God's wisdom and God's power and God's love. God's love that is wide and long and high and deep for you and has secured you. You're looking for God. And then you're looking to read you in light of God and to rest in Him. This is not... Please, please don't think of it like this is the duty that you have to do as a Christian. Follow all of this through and see. This is the recipe for how to make a meal of hope. Can you believe this? You must for your hope. Can you believe this? Well, take and read. And by the Spirit of God, He will cause this to sink into you and cause your heart to burn. To burn with joy and hope. And that is the way to live. It brings great honor to God and it brings life to you. So let me pray for that for us. Father, we give you thanks for what the passage is, is about in the, in the flow of Luke. It is about the risen Christ. It is about the risen Christ as the fulfillment of the plan of God that must be. It is about the risen Christ as the fulfillment of the plan, in God, plan of God for the redemption of a people to him. For his glory. We give you thanks for all that. You have done it. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then we ask you, would you do more? For those of us who are Christians, would you cause this to sit in us, even now to, to sink a little more deeply into us and to stir us and to move us, to, to warm our hearts and would you then also move us to regularly get ourselves in front of this word for the sake of meeting you? Help us, Lord. Show us our need for that. Give us, give us desire for it, please. And for those of us who, who don't know you at the moment, Lord, would you call them, particular ones here perhaps or elsewhere maybe, would you call particular people to yourself? Would you open their eyes and show them this risen Christ and move them to believe it? To make it seem not just reasonable, not just clear, but true. Spirit of God, that is your work and we ask you to do it. Would you convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? And would you display a glorious Savior from sin who enables those who trust Him to escape judgment and be righteous? We ask you for this, Lord, because you are good, because you are generous. You are the Savior of all who trust you. You are the Savior of the world. Men from every tongue and tribe and nation and women from every tongue and tribe and nation and children, boys and girls from every tongue and tribe and nation. All of the world. Would you call particular people from all the world to believe you? 
and find life in you. This is your work, and we ask you to do it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.